When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, believers, non-believers, and everyone in between. You're listening to Stories with Sapphire. I am Sapphire Sandalo. Now get cozy and open your mind because it's story time. We are visitors, passing through locations and through people's lives. This week's episode is about the visits that have a life-changing impact on us. First, I speak with Brian J. Cano, paranormal investigator, about the most terrifying place he's ever visited. After that, I speak with a friend who was visited by mysterious lights in the desert. And finally, Shelby Scott host of Scare You to Sleep, tells her experience of passing through the Vicksburg battlefield. Chapter 1. The Grand Midway Hotel. My name is Brian J. Cano. I'm a paranormal investigator for the past 18 years, and I spend most of my off non-professional hours crawling around in the dark, just looking for answers. And uh, it's led me to some pretty interesting places. Brian is a fellow panelist on Paranormal Caught on Camera on the Travel Channel and a paranormal investigator, an unexpected career choice. You know, it really, it wasn't so much of a conscious choice, just something that I, I kind of fell into. Now, when I was a kid... I believed in everything. And I think when you're a kid, uh, that's just you know, your default state. You believe in everything. Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, what have you. And as you get older, you start to lose these things. And for a long time, I, I found myself, and around college age, I found myself uh, a huge skeptic uh, to the point where I didn't believe in anything. I had a crisis of faith going on. I was raised Catholic, but I'm non-practicing these days. And... It wasn't really one thing that turned it all around. It literally was that the cable access show I started doing with some friends and on it, I was the skeptic and it was my job to try and find a rational, logical explanation for the things that were going on, for the things that were reported. And over time, every experience, every adventure, every little thing that I looked into and adventure I went on gave me a little bit more, a little, I call it a grain of sand. By itself, it's inconsequential. It doesn't seem like much. You look at it, you throw it to the ground. And enough time goes on, you look down, and you find yourself standing on a beach. And when I looked down and saw the beach that I was standing on, I had to really consider what that meant for me. And that pulled me away from being the hardcore skeptic to uh, something quite in the middle. I consider myself a skeptical believer these days because I know the activity is out there. I know the phenomenon is real. It's the people who report it that I'm skeptical of. 
times. I, I've, I've actually had to, to sit down recently and sort of categorize these because I'm, I'm in the process right now of editing my first book. And in this book, everything is, each chapter is an anecdotal experience about something that I've been through related to the paranormal that even if I didn't recognize it at the time, it taught me something. The one that I always go back to over and over and over, uh, whether the question is, what is your craziest experience? What was your scariest experience? Have you ever had a demonic encounter? The one place that I went to that checks all those boxes uh, is a place called the Grand Midway Hotel in Winbur, Pennsylvania. This place, whoo, to describe it in a nutshell, imagine uh, the Munsters meets the Adams Family meets Ripley's Believe It or Not. This place, you just, I can't even describe it accurately. You'd have to go there and still you'd be like, wow, this place is insane. It was a hotel. And back in the, the early days, uh, in the 1800s, uh, it was very um, integral to the mining industry in the town. That's where all the uh, miners would, would come and stay. Uh, they would mine the mountains, and then they would stay at the hotel. And the the legend go as the legend goes, they would get workers from Europe, and they would invite them to the States. They would say, come, come to the States, work in the mines. You can eventually bring your families over. We're going to give you this big, huge advance, and we'll even construct you a house to live in. But you got to come and, and come to America. So they did. And when they got to Winbur, they said, oh, mm, you know about that house? We're not done yet. It's coming. Don't worry about it. But you, you know what? You can stay in the Grand Midway. That's, that's fine. We have accommodations for you. And you know, as far as uh, rent goes, we'll just take it out of that advance that we gave you. So the miners came, and the houses were never built, but through gambling, alcohol, women, they managed to get the money away from each and every one of these miners to the point where they now owed the company. And that that's, that song by uh, Paul Robeson, uh, 16 Tons, became a literal truth. They owed their soul to the company's store. And, you know, allegedly, again, the, the rumors go that people who tried to unionize or, or speak out against the company would disappear. And there have been many rumors about bodies being buried in the basement of the hotel. Now, that alone seemed to be a, an amazing tale that would uh, support and create a possible haunting. But that's not that. That's 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 the foundation. That's just the uh, the concrete bottom of this tale. The Grand Midway, after the mining industry in the area dried up, it sat abandoned for a number of years. They tried to turn it into different things like uh, a discotheque, a pharmacy, all different types of, of businesses went in there until once again, they just couldn't find a use for it and it stood abandoned. Enter a man named Blair Murphy. This cat worked out in Hollywood. He was getting fed up with, with uh, the scene out there. And if you're a Fight Club fan, you'll get this reference. He pulled a Tyler Durden, and he decided to move into this dilapidated <laughs> old building out in the middle of nowhere. He found it on eBay for $11,000. He bought the hotel. It's a 33-room hotel. And he decided, okay, this this is where I'm going to be. This is where I'm going to live. And he spent the, those first two years trying to fix it up and renovate it. There was barely any heat, barely any running water. He lived in 
the vestibule portion of it where the bar was for those first two years because he didn't want to venture uh, too far into the hotel because of the things he felt. Now, after he got it up to code and up to living standards, he opened it up as a place where artists could come, uh, creative people, whether you're a poet, a musician, uh, a dancer, uh, a writer, you could come there, live, and just work on your craft. So it became this hub for all this creative energy. And this one particular gentleman moved in. His name was Dylan, and he was a painter. Now, Dylan, as many artists do, struggled with, we'll say, abuse, substance abuse. So he would like to experiment with certain things, and uh, he would take whatever he saw while he's on these trips, and he would paint them. And at first, they were just you know random, fantastic things. But over time, he started painting very specific things, very specific places, and eventually specific forms, specific figures, until one figure dominated all of his artwork. And eventually, that figure reached out to him and said, well, this is my name. This is how you can refer to me. Fast forward to 2009, where my group Scared and I went there to do an investigation. Now, by this time, that painter had moved out. Uh, he had just had, had enough. He tried to reform his life, join the Jehovah's Witnesses, burn most of his paintings. And the room that he lived in was now a skeleton of its former self. All the paintings that had adorned the walls had been taken, taken down, with the exception of one or two. But one of them was a floor-to-ceiling painting of this figure. It was a tall figure, slender, gray skin, maybe seven feet tall. Uh, the way he painted it, it had uh, you know, black, sullen sockets for eyes. Uh, in some renditions, it had a horn, and often its hands were glowing as if on fire. Now, when we went there ourselves, uh, our, our group psychic communed with something that she described the same way and the way the way it played out uh, even though i've been doing this for 18 years this is the one and only case i've ever done or worked on that involves something potentially demonic and even though you know on the tv shows they like to throw around that word every everything is is a demon i can i can safely say that yeah uh, i believe this was legit so what is a demonic entity now, I was raised Catholic, so I have all the old teachings in the back of my head about angels and demons, uh, all these things that happened before man came about and the rebellion against God that, okay, he wanted the angels to bow down to man. And a couple of them said, yeah, we're not doing that. And, you know, sorry, old man, we're, we're not going to follow you. So we're going to go this way. And those angels fell and became demons. Now, I don't know if I necessarily believe that as the definitive uh, description of what happened, but I feel like every religion on our planet has some some creation tale and has some pantheon of gods, godlike figures, creatures, and and servants of those deities. So, be it a demon, be it a jinn, be it you know whatever whatever the nomenclature is, I feel there are entities out there that serve that purpose. Now, if you think about the description, tall, slender, gray skin, all right, a lot of uh, people who've reported UFO abductions describe something similar. 
perhaps one person's gray alien is another person's demon, uh, and so forth. This artist had painted this demon that continuously appeared to him, which reminded me of the story Mark told in Season 1, Episode 5, Not of This World, where he tells the story of seeing the inhuman figure that Clive Barker had painted. In both these cases, the figure forces the artist to illustrate them. Why is that? Is it because these demons want to be seen? Recently, I learned about shamanic art and how drawing what you see in the spirit realm is one way of manifesting it in the physical world. Maybe these demons know that. But what do they want with us? The way it was described to me at this particular uh, place, everything is territory to them. We are territory. A room is territory. If you give them permission to be there, or if you give them permission to enter your body, they're going to take it and then say, what's next? It's a cosmic game of risk where they're going to take as much territory as they can. Now, to what end? What's the goal? Well, again, as was described to me, you know, before mankind came around, these entities were immortal, beautiful beings that had uh, rich lives and amazing intellects and had the entire scope of eternity to live, I guess, if you want to be uh, describe it religiously, in God's presence, or if we just want to boil it down to spirituality, you know, wherever the source is, whatever the energy is uh, that that created things, uh, they had access to that. And when they fell, they did so because they were they were rebelling against a decree to, you know, help us, to follow us, to guide us, and we are the object of that bad decision. So they hate us. You know, imagine someone who's done something bad to you. You know, we all have our our, our uh, adversaries, our our Newmans, like on Seinfeld, that just like, oh, that guy, oh, he's the worst. <laughs> imagine that on a cosmic level, on an eternal level, and they just never get over it. And I've, I even asked the question, I said, you know, well, God's a forgiving guy, right? Can't the demon say, we're wrong, we, we did the wrong thing, we're sorry, we repent. And uh, as it was always taught to me, and you know they can't do that. Uh, angels have far seeing. They can see from the beginning of time to the end of time. They saw the consequences of their actions and still chose to follow Lucifer to do the wrong thing. And as such, they will never, ever be able to come back into the presence of, of the creator. And like I said, right after this occurrence, this adventure happened, the next two years just were very... I guess dark to me because I'm thinking like, all right, there's demons everywhere. They're taking over places. They're taking over people. Average Joes like me are not equipped to fight them. So, oh my, we're eventually going to lose. This is going to be a zero-sum game on a long enough timeline. And I got really depressed about it until we went back to the Grand Midway on a, a season two episode of Haunted Collector. Now, one of the things that happened that first visit was that we got an EVP in the owner's voice, and the owner wasn't anywhere nearby. He was out. You know, he, he was he was working while we were investigating. And you know, spirit can sometimes mimic voices, and that's that's fine and all. But when we went back with Haunted Collector, uh, John Zaffis also got an EVP in that owner's voice, and I'm thinking, all right, the one I got was on the third floor. That's where the artist's room was. That's where the artist gave permission for this entity to inhabit. 
John got it on the second floor. And I'm thinking, oh, no, it's it's increasing its territory. It's it's spreading out like what I thought was 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 true that, yes, it is. You know, we can't stop it. And one of the takeaways from that original that uh, that original investigation was that, all right, if there's evil, there's also good and there's a balance, you know, fighting it out and. It took me those two years to understand that, all right, yeah, all right, if there is a balance, it's not just demons filling the world. Like, okay, yes, there's an unseen evil, but there's also an unseen good. And, you know, whether you want to turn them angels or beings of light or whatever we label them, they're out there too. And that made me feel a lot better. It it calmed me down. So what becomes of those who encounter these demons? When we were leaving that first weekend, the artist did show up because he heard, you know, there was investigators kicking around in his old room and meeting him was like meeting a recently recovering addict because A, that was true uh, with the substance abuse. But as far as the demonic involvement, he asked, he said, guys, um, by any chance, do you get it? you have any pictures of, of my paintings? I, I really would like to see them again. And I got flashes of, you know, Lord of the Rings when Bilbo asks if he can see his ring again. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, buddy. Yeah, we didn't we didn't see anything because for him to, to be exposed to that again would be exposing him again to a danger, to a, a relapse. And I, I could tell I could hear it in his voice. Uh, he was he was jonesing. These paintings could have possibly been the result of the artist's drug-induced hallucinations. But when Brian and his team investigated the hotel, they gathered proof that it was much more than that. Our psychic said that when she tried to look at it, it had like a melty face, like its face was melting. So that, again, is a, a, a visage that is hard to lock down because it was constantly moving. And she said that anytime she tried to get a good look, it would get behind her. The current skeptic of our group at the time, my buddy Chris, super skeptical. He's like, oh, it's behind you? Okay, well, how about I do this? And he went and stood where the creature supposedly was. And he reported saying anytime he would stand in that spot, he would feel this icy chill going up his spine as if it something was trying to, to get in or trying to check him out. And uh, this is a guy that really isn't going to connect those dots. He's not going to, he's not going to make something up just to, for sensational uh, reporting, but he's like, yeah, this happened not once or twice, but like five times. The adventure that we had in that room, in that time, this is, uh, maybe one day I'll make a movie out of it, but it's one of the chapters in my upcoming book. And it's a, it's a crazy story. For more details of Brian's visit to the Grand Midway Hotel, you'll have to wait for his book, grains of sand. Chapter 2. Brought to Life Dab, stroke, dip, tap. This is the dance of your birth. Every flourish of my wrist draws you closer and closer. The heat of your breath now emanates from the wall. Dab, stroke, dip, tap your visage no longer just in my mind's eye but gazing into mine your scent penetrates the room you're almost here dab stroke dip tap dab stroke dip tap i have to quicken my steps they are trying to stop me please do not take offense but they don't want you 
They fear you. If only they just let me finish, then they too can be freed. They can surrender to your will, drown in your trust, and be free like me. Why would anyone not want to be freed? Freed from choice. Freed from fear. Dab, stroke, dip, tap. I hear them at the door. But they are too late. It's complete. Nothing can stop us now. Before I became a podcaster and paranormal investigator, I used to be a full-time animator and character designer, and podcasts kept me company while I drew, especially paranormal podcasts. One of my favorites was Jim Harold's Campfire. I would actually be shocked if you hadn't heard of it because it's one of the OGs. In fact, it recently celebrated its 13th anniversary. But if you haven't heard of it, it's a call-in show where ordinary people share their extraordinary stories with Jim every week. The story topics range from ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, and stories that can't be categorized. You're listening to my show right now, so I know that you love non-fictional paranormal stories. Stories involving the serial killer Ted Bundy, or a man who owned a haunted hotel. And also heartwarming stories of deceased loved ones coming back to say hello. Jim Harold's Campfire was a huge inspiration for me. So do me a personal favor and tune in to Jim Harold's Campfire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Stories with Sapphire. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Chapter 3. Joshua Tree. Have you ever encountered an intelligent beam of light? My friend has. We'll call him Arthur. This is his story. Yeah, so actually every year, um, a group of us go down to Joshua Tree, California, and um, take psychedelics and kind of get back to nature and what's important and kind of understanding, you know, that work's not important and, the rea- you know, your relationship with the planet and your consciousness is what's important. So we go down every year and do that. And um, our most recent trip, we had some very interesting things uh, take place while we were there. Um, There's about seven of us that go down. And uh, we had this really amazing property down there that was, I guess, probably like five acres. And they had built a small replica Western town on the property, which was really amazing. They had like a saloon and a train car and just a, a beautiful, beautiful property. So when we got there, we, you know, stayed over the first night. No, no big deal. Nothing crazy. And then the next day we got up and the sky was just like unbelievably gorgeous. So we took some pictures out on the property. Remember this for later. And then uh, decided to go for a hike. So a lot of the guys took some mushrooms at that point and started hiking. I did not at that point because we had, you know, you got to have somebody Sherpa the group a little bit. So uh was kind of looking out for everybody and we went on this great hike a uh, couple hours and then came home and started hanging out at the house, having some drinks, just talking, listening to music. 
And around midnight, my friend Kenny and I decided to go outside and have a conversation. And, you know, the other thing I forgot to mention is this property was backed up against like a nature preserve. It's like thousands and thousands of acres of just nothing, just no one around. Um, and so Kenny's a big guy. He's like really buff, very intimidating look, looking dude, not someone that you would think would get easily scared. Um, and so we're chatting and he had his back to the house and I had my back to the desert. And you know, when you're talking to somebody, you can, you know, they're locked eyes with you and in mid conversation, they kind of drift past your head and, and look beyond you. Uh, well, Kenny did that. And as soon as he looked beyond me, his face kind of just went blank and he looked terrified and he was like, uh, Oh my God, what is that? And I was like, what? And he's like, and he's like whispering to me, like, look, look, what is that? What is that? And so I turn around and I would say probably like 60 to 70 feet away from us, um, up on like a slight slope in the ground is this like pure white orb, the size of a basketball floating, I would say six feet off the ground. Um, and the thing that was interesting is when I turned around to look and I, as soon as I saw it, all the sounds of the desert and everything kind of went and it was just, I could only hear myself breathing and I could only hear my friend Kenny talking and everything else kind of fell off, if that makes sense. Um, and so as soon as I saw it, it was pure white light and like, you know, when you squint your eyes and look at a light and you can see like the refractions kind of coming off, um, there were like orange and blue and green and purple and all these weird colors coming off of it and kind of shooting off into single little spurts. And my immediate reaction was to like go to it. I wanted to like walk out and see what it was, what it was. And then Kenny started getting really worked up uh, in a quiet way. You know, what is that? What is that? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And, you know, that kind of got me a little worked up. And what we noticed is that it was slowly coming towards us, like very, very, very slow. But what was cool is that underneath it, you could see that the, the ground was illuminated from the light it was giving off. So, you know, couldn't have been someone walking with a flashlight because you would see the movement of the hand. And the, it's a very distinctive look. Um, so it just keeps coming, keeps coming. And then I look to my right and on the property, uh, probably about 150 feet away was another one. And that one was just sitting there. And, you know, I said to Kenny, I'm like, Kenny, look, look, there's another one. And he's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, what do we do? What do we do? And, I, and I, I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. So Kenny, just out of nowhere, just yells, hey! And it stops. And then it starts going to the left really, really slow. And at this point, I'm kind of getting panicked. And everyone else is in the house, and no one else, you know, no one else is out there. And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, we're on mushrooms. Maybe I'm hallucinating. But I'm like, if I'm hallucinating, how is he seeing it? How is it responding? There's another one. Like, we're both seeing all of this stuff. So I kind of ruled that out. So I was like, I got to get everybody. So I jam over in the house. I was only about five feet away from the door. Rip the door open, run inside. Everyone's kind of dancing and talking and stuff. And I'm like, yelled, like, everybody, you got to get out of here right now. Right now, you got to see this. And like, you know, everyone, of course, is like, whoa, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, there's something going on out here. You have to come out here. And so everyone comes out and it's gone. And I looked at Kenny and I'm like, Kenny, where what happened and he's like dude as soon as you went for the door they both just disappeared and i was like what you know and so then at this point everyone's like okay guys and just you know whatever you guys seeing stuff i'm like yeah but we both saw it like you know and i don't know what it was and like you know describing the the way these sounds changed and how i felt and the way it was moving and i looked at kenny and i'm like kenny what you know what was that and he's like still kind of panicked but now that everyone's there he's like 
a little more loose and kind of going back into that vibe of like, oh, it's fine, you know? And he's like, I don't know, man, the desert's a really weird place. And so we went inside and I actually went inside and got a flashlight and went out and looked for footprints or, you know, and there's just nothing, just nothing out there. When I first looked at it, I was totally intrigued. Uh, it felt welcoming. It felt warm. Um, I didn't feel any fear at all. And I, like I said, my first inclination was to just go to it. You know, I was really feeling like very welcomed and loving and, you know, it was, it was strange. And, you know, once Kenny started kind of getting worked up, that really affected my mood, uh, obviously, for obvious reasons. But, you know, I think if, if he wouldn't have been there, I probably would have walked to it. Or if he would have had a different set of emotions on his side, that I would have gone to it. But I just let that affect me a little too much, I think. So earlier in the story, Arthur mentioned that he and his friends had taken photos on the property. After reviewing them the day after the lights appeared, he spotted something odd in the photos. Two orbs, right in the spot where they had seen them the night before. And then the next day, we were going through our photos from that yesterday during the day, and we had taken pictures right by where where, where we saw this thing. And in two of the photographs, there's a green orb uh, right by Kenny, uh, and it moves from one photograph to the other. And, you know, I guess you could argue that it's a light refraction, but it doesn't look like one because there's you can see artifacts in front and behind of it. So you can it's it's just really, really creepy and weird. And I showed that to everyone and they were like, holy shit. To see the photos Arthur is referring to, visit storieswithsapphire.com. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was that and never found out what it was. That's all. And, you know, have we've gone to Joshua Tree before and I've definitely seen things in the sky that I can't explain. But this was like the first time that it was something super close. And I called the property manager and asked if, you know, hey, I know this is going to sound like really, really weird, but we had some like interesting stuff happen last night. I'm like, has, you know, has anyone ever reported seeing anything they can't explain? And he said, um, well, it's the desert. And there's a lot of uh, Native Americans are around here. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think that this particular part of the desert, Joshua Tree in particular, emanates a lot of energy. And, you know, I don't know what it was, but I'm, I'm glad that you had something happen. So but the thing is, the, the funny thing is, is like Kenny, you know, I would call him pretty much every day after that trip for like two weeks straight to just talk about it because it was so it kind of felt felt like it changed me a little bit like opened my eyes up to like you know I'd always kind of believed in that stuff but having something like that happen was like really eye-opening and so I wanted to talk about it and as time went on Kenny I don't know if he got sick of talking to me about it or didn't want to deal with it or what but just basically said like there were probably headlights dude I don't know and I don't want to talk about it anymore so I don't know I don't know if it's like not rational you know rationalizing it or just wanting to put it out of your mind but yeah that's uh the weird shit that happened to me in uh, Joshua Tree. <laughs> Chapter 4. Vicksburg. Hi, I'm Shelby Scott, and I host the Scary to Sleep podcast. So, my husband is from Mississippi, and I'm from Southern California. We met in Los Angeles, and when we first started getting serious about nine years ago, he decided he wanted to bring me home to meet the family. I'm a huge history buff, so I asked to see all the historical things he was willing to take me to. In California, for a long time, we tended to not really preserve things, so I was so excited to see so many old buildings and historical sites in general. He decided to take me to a Civil War battlefield while we were there because 
We don't have anything like that in California, nothing preserved anyway. So we went on a mini road trip, just the two of us to Vicksburg, Mississippi to visit the battlefield there. We were also told that it was a good place to get a true version of what happened and not a Southern whitewashed one. In fact, this was kind of proven to us when we spoke to someone who we were unfortunately introduced to, um, a very unpleasant person. And we mentioned that we were going there and they said it made the South look bad and that it was an unfair representation of the Confederacy. No joke. I laugh so I don't scream. Anyway, so we knew that it was probably a good place to go learn some real history. A lot of the battlefield has been taken back by the forest, and there's a road that goes through the woods so you can get to each part. Um, it was a weekday, so we were basically the only people around. We were the only car when we first drove up, apart from the person running the little museum at the entrance. So as we were driving, we turned into a heavily wooded area. Like I said, a lot of the battlefield has been reclaimed by nature, which is great, but <laughs> that's when sh got weird. So I noticed that the sounds of the forest were suddenly gone. No sound of trees in the wind, no birds. It was eerily quiet, like someone had a volume remote and hit mute. I didn't know if my husband was experiencing the same thing, and since we were fairly new to our relationship, I didn't want to scare him off with any talks of paranormal stuff. And yeah, we had we definitely hadn't had that discussion yet. So I was just keeping my gaze out the window, trying to stay calm, and I noticed he slowed the car to a stop without saying anything. All of a sudden, over the sound of the radio, I started hearing men's voices in my ears like directly in my ears I still wasn't looking over at my husband and was sort of frozen that was when I realized he was turning down and then off the radio it was apparent now that he heard them too then he turned off the car the voices got even louder it was as if we were standing in the middle of a group of men, and they could see us, but we couldn't see them. I can't remember what they were saying, but both of us afterwards said that we had the heaviest feeling that they were talking about us, and they seemed as surprised to see us as we were to hear them. As if a switch flipped. After I have no idea how long of sitting there in these whispers, they were gone. Then the sounds of nature returned at full volume, birds chirping, trees, some deer even crossed in front of the car as if they sensed that the coast was clear. That's when another car pulled up behind us. It was a one-way, very narrow road, so my husband quickly turned the car back on and we moved on. We finally had our first <laughs> paranormal discussion as a couple. What's odd is both of us had previously in our lives been heavily into the paranormal, him leaning toward very religious aspects of it. At the time this happened, he had left the church and was a non-believer in anything beyond. I was a huge skeptic and had actually been grieving the loss of faith in the idea that something else was out there. 
It was an experience that rocked both of us, and neither of us had any idea of the other's beliefs when it came to this stuff. It's definitely been an experience to remember, and we both still have no idea what happened or what it was, since it wasn't a traditional seeing an apparition at the foot of your bed or even any kind of poltergeist activity. I've done a lot of research since, and the only thing I can come up with is something called a time slip. Some people believe that it's like two different timelines or realities intersect for a brief moment and you get a kind of peek into the other one. Apparently it's happened before with civil war battlefields too. There are accounts of people running into men who they think are actors just dressed as soldiers, but then one man is shocked to see them, inquires why they're dressed as they are and why they're here, And then they disappear. So I think maybe we startled a battalion of soldiers just as much as they startled us. Make sure you subscribe to Shelby's amazing podcast, Scare You to Sleep, for creepy stories narrated in a soothing way. Thanks for joining me today. If you like what you heard and would like to support this independently run show, consider becoming a member of my Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash stories with Sapphire to see the different tiers and perks like live watch parties or private tarot readings. What places have you visited that left a life-changing impression on you? Email me at storieswithsapphire at gmail.com. Salamat and good night. Stories with Sapphire is created and produced by me, Sapphire Sindalo. Special thanks to my guests, Brian J. Cano and Shelby Scott. Music written by Sapphire Sindalo. For more information on this episode and my guests, visit storieswithsapphire.com. 